Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Exert Breakthrough Lab podcast. Uh, we're live streaming today from Toronto, Ontario, uh, and as usual, I'm joined by Armando Mastracci. Hey, everyone. And Dr. Stephen Chung. Bonjour, mes amis. I noticed your French is on point. Uh, Stephen was at a conference earlier this week. Uh, would you be able to share a little bit uh, about that conference with us? Yes, actually. Armando and Scott just picked me up from the airport and dragged me into the podcast booth, uh, kicking and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> with promises of pizza anyway, so I came, uh, I was a willing hostage. But the, uh, yes, I was just at the International Conference on Soldier Physiology and Performance, sorry, Physical Performance Conference. I was in Quebec City this past week, and it was really, as you can tell from the title, all focused on warfighter health and performance and really uh, improving kind of the science support around them. And so it was both military and civilian researchers and policymakers from all around the uh, kind of the NATO nation. So it was really cool, literally, because yesterday it was minus 25 before wind chill. So I was very Celsius. Happy. Celsius, Celsius yes. Yeah, so freedom degrees. <laughs> I was uh, very happy I didn't sign up for the, for the uh, optional ski trip instead. But yeah, and it was really good. And I guess the highlight for me was actually in our... We had a, I was part of a symposium on kind of global warming and urbanization and its impact on the warfighter and in the audience uh, during our whole talks, including mine, was uh, Lieutenant General Wayne Eyre, who's the commander of the entire Canadian forces. So, you know, let's talk about who, uh, who to get in a room and talk about what you want to implement. Uh, I guess for Canadians, I couldn't have much more of a targeted and captive audience for mm -hmm. our talk so that was really fun to do and of course uh, walking around Quebec City seeing uh, all these uh, all these school groups and their French exchange just remembering hey that was me uh, when I was in grade nine so brought back a lot of fond memories. That sounds awesome I hope you uh, had had a chance to get some climbing in while you're out there as well. Yeah, found a great climbing gym and uh, took full advantage of that rather than getting a frostbite with the with the ski trip. <laughs> so welcome back to the uh, to the kind of balmy Toronto weather. Yeah, My, minus three today, it feels warm. <laughs> it feels warm. <laughs> um, well, Stephen would be happy to know. Uh, our research has so, so far been going really well. We've got... Uh, Hopefully around 60 or 65 percent of our data collected uh, for my thesis project so far. So that's exciting. Uh, we've got a little bit of a break here in, in early February. We've got some other testing going on in the lab, and uh, we should military have... testing, as it turns out. Military uh, testing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a fun study to participate in, by the way. Uh, 13, 13 kilometer walk is a, a lot farther uh, when when you're uh, paced at uh, a little over five kph. It takes quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, but what about you, Armando? What have you uh, What have you been up to? Well, you know, we've um, it's been a really it's been great so far this 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 winter. We've seen a, a nice healthy up, uh, uptick in terms of users and and people that are using Exert. We got a lot of people that tried it a couple of years ago and now are coming back again and checking out the new features and. We're getting a lot of really great positive feedback from our customers. So. All in all, it's been really exciting. Um, good growth for for uh, for the the business and uh, hiring more employees to come and uh, help us out. So, thanks to all of our subscribers out there that are helping us out here. It's all coming together, and we keep growing and um, you know looking to continue to add more capabilities and more features. So stay tuned for some great new things coming from us. Got a couple of projects uh, working on oh, behind yeah. the scenes. Oh, oh yeah, as, as really, usual. Actually, really cool stuff. So excited to get that, get some of this new stuff out. All right, stay yeah. tuned, everyone. And mm -hmm. tell your friends. Um, all right, so uh, today's podcast is really, uh, uh, it's really bringing out one of the requests that we had actually during the Christmas special. And, and one of our users had actually kind of asked to give a little bit of a history behind Exert and kind of how it, how it began and um, how a lot of actually a lot of our metrics have come to be. So I'm hoping that today uh, we're going to be focusing mostly on that. Where, where did Exert start from? Uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping uh, Armando will be able to uh, guide us through that. And, and uh, Dr. Chung and I will be able to, uh, Pitch some feedback in along the way. Well, obviously, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. So, uh, 
yeah, I'll, I'll we'll do my best to kind of give everyone a, a little bit of a feel for where these, where all this stuff came from. And as we go through this, it'll be, again, a lot of listeners kind of, especially maybe newer subscribers to Exert, just think, oh, like, this stuff has always been here. And as we'll see, it's uh, it's kind of started out with one kind of central kind of idea finding, and then it just kind of balloons out and out and out from that. And kind of, so a lot of the measures were just constantly adding and improving and or refining and uh, so yeah definitely if you haven't given exert try in the last year or a couple of years you'll see it's really you know so much more kind of uh, possibilities and capabilities now mm-hmm. yeah so why don't you uh, why don't you take us all the way back to what is it 20 20 mid 20 teens somewhere around oh, there yeah even earlier than that oh. No, so this thing has been it's been kind of in a gestation period for uh, for quite some time. From when I, for, I really started first training, um, you know, uh, actually, guys, if you want to look outside, you'll see there's this recumbent bike that's sitting in the snow right now <laughs> outside. Uh, and this recumbent bike was my originally my, my original tool for training. Uh, you, you weren't always a cyclist, were you? No, I, I got to cycling pretty late in life. Um, but being the engineer kind of type and uh, being fascinated by kind of how to improve, I got right into power-based training. And that was because of this bike. We ha- had this, it showed power. It, it didn't collect any power data, but it showed power. Uh, and so having done a little bit of research and realizing that you want to, you know, it's better to train with power than with heart rate. And this was very, very early on. I got right into kind of ramp testing and, doing a bunch of things just to kind of experiment with my with myself and kind of had that initial experience that a lot of people have when they first get into cycling, and that is they improve really, really rapidly. So, you know, if, if you have never done any kind of cycling before and you start doing some training, you'll find that you'll, your threshold starts to move up real quickly. You start being able to do longer efforts, and your body adapts really quickly at the beginning. And I found that really fascinating, and I was always wondering, well, how good could I get? And could I, uh, you know, where, where, how good would I be if I decided to compete? And so I was encouraged to kind of keep training and maybe even look at competition even when I first started. And that's what kind of motivated me to kind of look at my data and look at power. And so it's kind of fortunate that I had this recumbent power bike because I couldn't record anything. I couldn't use existing tools. I had to kind of write everything down by hand and, you know, dump stuff into a spreadsheet. And in doing so, it managed to discover some interesting patterns. Um, One of the things that I did, for example, was um, if I did a ramp test, uh, because I was writing writing down my numbers during the the ramp test, uh, I didn't want to have to write down my cadence. It's like, okay, I'm just going to keep cadence constant. We're going to do the ramp test at 80 RPM. I'm not going to change it or 60 RPM. So I don't have to write it down. I just keep that number constant. And what, what I found, which was really interesting, was that um, in doing so, in creating these charts, I realized that there's actually a relationship between power, cadence, and heart rate. So at least, uh, you know, you do this ramp test and you'd see kind of steady state heart rate and then power would go steady state, cadence was fixed, and you start plotting this data. Um I thought this was really cool. So I started running my own experiments, uh, you know, rather than keeping, um, keeping cadence constant, I would keep power constant and I changed my cadence and heart rate and see what would happen then. So I just started creating those charts and I ended up with creating some math that would explain power, cadence and heart rate. And that was really cool because it just fit into the spreadsheets that I was using and worked extremely well. And it was allowed me to kind of predict kind of power for a particular heart rate at a given cadence. And so that was really interesting in the sense that I could then use that to model power from heart rate. So I was taking heart rate data and trying to see how well could I model power from that. Um, and that was, um, you know, and you know, there, there's some issues when you start modeling power with heart rate. First off, heart rate doesn't respond very quickly. So you have all this these change, these dynamic changes in heart rate. So you have to kind of keep heart rate fairly constant. But then, you know, if you start to get overheating, you end up with inflated heart rate. And so the heart rate was affected by a number of factors. Um, and one of those factors ended up being fatigue. And so 
how heart rate would was affected by fatigue, I, I, I that didn't come up at the very beginning. Um, I just saw that as stuff that was in the model that just wasn't working right. But then um, started to look at some some new newer fatigue models that were just sort of coming out in the research. So. Uh, Dr. Phil Skiba came up with his sort of modeling of fatigue, intermittent fatigue. There was a CPW prime modeling. And I kind of looked at all that and I thought, maybe some of this would be usable. Or how would I use this in modeling heart rate and its relationship with power? Um, and, you know, it took it took a while. Uh, I wasn't really looking for MPA at the time. I was looking to say, looking to think about efficiency factors and Maybe your resting heart rate was being changed over time from the fatigue or wasn't really sure what aspect of the model was being affected by the fatigue um, until I implemented this kind of concept of power, maximal power in the model. Uh, and lo and behold, the model went from being pretty good to being really good. It was just this massive jump in performance of the model. And I kind of knew then that this new concept of MPA at the time, this maximal power, was really something special because it, it, it was a dramatic improvement to the overall model. And that was, again, well before Exert came into existence. This was sort of early on. Didn't know what really to do with it. I, I remember approaching a number of physiologists at the time and offered them kind of concepts that I was working on. And it was just being an engineer. Uh, no, not being in the research field, it was really hard to get people's attention because, you know, you're not, I'm not a, I'm not a PhD graduate with a degree in physiology. I was just somebody just messing around with some data, looking at and discovering various patterns in it, in the data. And so, um, so I just continued on with, with that model. Um, and again, it wasn't until much later on that I looked at this MPA and I thought, well, what if we were to sustain a constant effort? What would happen? Well, the constant effort, if you were to maintain it, you would only be able to maintain it until your maximal power reached your power. And I looked at the, the, the model and the math and I said, well, if I solve for this, then I should get a power duration curve. And lo and behold, when I did solve it, I, w I was able to solve it myself. I had to use some tools like Wolfram Alpha to help me solve the math, but uh, it was fun putting in the putting in the formula, getting a solution, and then plugging it into a, a spreadsheet, and then seeing a perfect power duration curve come out of it. I thought that was a, a really cool, uh, really cool outcome. And so, by uh, trying to model your MPA, you're just trying to understand how how much power you could generate at any point in time. And so at the time, you were just trying to solve that one power duration curve, or did you have any plans to do anything with that? I, I, you know, again, we're, I was just playing with, with stuff on my own, right? It wasn't, you know, we started, I started sort of plotting different things and seeing, um, yeah. So a lot of the critical power W prime testing that's done is usually done using different study uh, steady power uh, outputs until you can't hold it anymore. And you kind of take multiple of those points and you plot them and it gives you your nice power duration curve. Um, so I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about how Exert is looking at those points of failure uh, and using MPA kind of to determine uh, that fitness signature versus uh, just plotting several of those different constant uh, power efforts to failure. So, you know, if you've played around with Exert, you may have come across the calculator. And so the calculator is essentially, it's very similar math in terms of how it's, how it's cal trying to calculate the three signature variables from three efforts to failure. So where CPW prime, for those that are, are familiar with it, you know, you can throw out a number of pieces of data, but essentially it's trying to solve for two, two, two parameters, CP and W prime from uh, maximal efforts. So you take, you give it two data points and it'll give you two values. And you typically you'll run like three or four uh, just to make sure that you've got, um, um, you're using average values and you're getting a little bit more precision when you do multiple tests. But in a, with the calculator to get your signature, sorry, you only need three values. Um, and what's unique about those three values is that they don't, they can be across any duration because we have a 
formula for peak power all the way to out to your threshold power. So we have all those data points mapped out. And every single one of those power duration elements is made up of the three values. So, you know, we, we can establish your, your threshold even with efforts, you know, in the seconds range because your threshold contributes to those. So, you know, many times it's a matter of precision. Right? Mm-hmm. Do, can we get enough precise information? Um, but if the, if the data is precise, we sort of see it, uh, the relationship fitting that power duration model that we've established from the special use case. It's, and I call it special use case because MPA wasn't meant to model power duration. It was meant to model intermittent fatigue. And we just used that special case of fixed power output from fresh to failure um, as being the representation of your power duration curve. But again, MPA wasn't meant to model power duration. It was meant to model intermittent fatigue. Yeah, and that's always the big challenge in most of modeling. It's really dealing with how do we you know, do like the Ronestad workouts where there is such a high, hard effort. And then, there it is. And then <laughs> oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to it even more. But... Um, <laughs> You know, where you have really hard efforts and then recovery, hard efforts, just like in any traditional kind of interval workout where you have hard recovery or hard efforts and then recovery, you know, how do we kind of average or kind of how do we kind of normalize for that, right? And that's always been the challenge with with power modeling of, of not necessarily a steady state effort that's in a sense relatively easy to model but what happens when we you know in road racing or riding or even just riding along every day it's a very stochastic type of power curve and power kind of fluctuations and and so Armando we were chatting about this a little bit earlier before but uh, I was hoping you would be able to describe a little bit more about it and it really wasn't until you started to look at MPA and power side by side like when I'm when I, especially when I get a breakthrough activity, like I, I, first thing I do is I'm going to open up and I'm going to do that MPA analysis. I'm going to be looking at the ride. Okay. What kind of power was I holding? What was happening to MPA? And eventually at some point when you get a breakthrough activity, you're, you're going to notice that at some point MPA is going to come down and it's going to touch that power line. And you were explaining to me before, that's really those, that's when exert really started to take off is you looking for that relationship where MPA and power are more or less the same. Well, you know, and exactly what Stephen was just saying, you just can't look at steady state efforts because in real data, there's never steady state. It's just always changing. So you're going periods where you're, where you're on and you're getting more fatigue. And then there's periods where you're going off and you're recovering. And so you're getting this, you know, fatiguing recovery, you know, just on and on and on in a given given ride or a given workout or a given race or whatever. So, so you can't just be looking at mean maximal power efforts, uh, alone. Uh, you, that that's, those are good. And I think those are very informative, but you know, we modeled, we were able to model the fatigue and that was the, both the, the increase in fatigue that caused a decrease in MPA and vice versa, where you're resting and MPA would rise. That was modeled. And so, when I looked at that, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. What would happen if I plotted MPA and power together? And so I created a spreadsheet and I, pl- I, pl- I plotted them together. I had the fitness signature as part of the, uh, the spreadsheet. And I looked at that and then I would change the signature and I would find that as I changed it, I could make, you know, I knew, and I knew at the, at, at the end of this race, for example, there was a sprint. So I knew that at that moment I was going all out. I had several seconds where there there was a uh, a sprint effort. When I looked at when I tweaked the numbers, I could make power and MPA align. And I was thinking, well, what does that really mean? Like, well, that must mean that I'm pushing out as hard as I can at that moment. And that's when the concept of kind of, you know, maximal effort or point of failure, even then I wasn't really sure how to define it other than MPA and power were aligned. That was kind of something special. And that I could, I could adjust when that happened by tweaking the signature numbers, by increasing or decreasing those numbers, I could make those, those data points 
align better. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because you look at the chart and just the same way we look at that chart, you see it as a way of discovering where these moments of failure occurred. How close were you to failure? Were they touching? And if they were touching, then you knew that you're at your maximum. And that, in the end, expressed what your signature was at the time. Yeah, that's really key, right? Those points of failure. And that's why when we say we, you know, we don't need to do any kind of traditional testing, but to really model your signature, we need you to kind of, in a sense, get to a point of breakthrough or have these hard efforts where you're driven to that point where, you know, you're, you're really at your, in a sense, physical limit, because those are the real kind of anchor points that the model needs in order to almost like reverse engineer your your exactly. fitness right if if all you ever do in a sense is just ride at a very easy pace and nowhere close to your you know true capacity if you never kind of push yourself hard then the model in a sense is always kind of not given enough sufficient kind of strong data points to really make the most accurate accurate a model mm-hmm. of your signature so that's why you know whenever we talk about breakthroughs we say you know you should be doing breakthrough rides every you know so often depending on on uh, how frequently you want your signature and in a sense how accurately you want your signature to be over a period of time mm-hmm. and something else that's interesting is is even if you do you can certainly do standard tests if you some people like doing those 20 minute tests because it's kind of race simulation it helps that they like the mindset of it they want to see okay my 20 minute power is definitely increasing i'm getting more fit uh but one of the things that's interesting with with exert and being able to kind of take any maximal effort regardless of how it is is that uh i I like using extreme uh as examples because i think they help illustrate things nicely but if we have two athletes one that's highly aerobic and a very low anaerobic contribution we've got one that's very anaerobic very low aerobic contribution they might have the same 20-minute power. And so if they do just a 20-minute test as hard as they can and they both, for some reason, happen to average the same 20-minute power value, if you just look at the 20-minute mean power, they're going to get the same threshold value uh, using traditional methods. But if we're able to allow them to express their their potential a little bit differently, so that maybe they do the 20-minute test, and then at the end of the 20 minutes, we tell them, okay, go 30 seconds more, everything you have. Mm-hmm. In those extra 30 seconds, because you've already more or less ridden MPA down to your power, uh, by continuing to look after that, we can actually see how they're fatiguing beyond that 20-minute mark. And from that, we're going to be able to address, okay, maybe one to 20 minutes, and then still was able to stand up and sprint three for 400, 500 watts at the end of it. So we know, okay, their peak power is going to be pretty big if they were rode for 20 minutes and then still sprinted for... 600 or the other person maybe they can only pedal for five seconds past that because they're so tired and so that's where you can use those traditional tests but it's actually almost better to just push yourself to the limit regardless because not only are we going to get your threshold but we're also going to discover based on how you fatigue when mpa and power are close we can determine what your what your hie what your peak power is exactly which won't be uncovered in in traditional steady state efforts it just won't you'll never find that so that's really what I was saying earlier that because your entire power duration curve um, is governed or can be ex- determined by your signature. But what we could also determine from your signature is your intermittent power duration capabilities. So we know from, like we only show MPA on the chart, but you think about when you see the MPA and as it's coming down, exert's not only able to determine what your maximal power is for let's say five seconds, but it actually knows what your maximal power is for three minutes and two minutes and 20 minutes. It knows every single aspect of what you could perform at any given moment in time. And so um, when you are reach your maximal effort and you can express multiple points along that curve, whether it's the maximal effort curve or in a fatigue state, your maximal curve, those all inform the algorithm. So, so long as you're pushing yourself and, ex- and expressing multiple points of failure, then the system can use that to say, oh, okay, these three signature numbers best match those efforts. And so you don't want to have like you know, just flat effort and abrupt changes and just sort of drop off. 
those are unnatural acts and it's only it's not able to really get an assessment of how you're fatiguing you want to be able to hold on to power and this it's kind of like the the fitness signature calculator you're giving it not just three points but you're giving it 10 points because you're holding on to mpa so each one of those seconds as your mpa comes down inform the model of how you're fatiguing and then that's going to help express your actual signature values all right. Uh, now, I, I wanted to back up a little bit. Uh, now, before we were talking about how you essentially discovered, okay, we can manipulate these fitness signatures and we can essentially make our MPA match our power at mm-hmm. these points of, of failure. Uh, but at, at this point in time, there was no way to measure how hard you're working, correct? It was just purely we can we can figure out what your fitness signature is. Well, it's, what was kind of the next step from there? What were your thoughts at that point? Well, you know, the, so just to take a step back, you know, this is where, you know, you, this whole MPA analysis stuff, it predates exert too. So I was just kind of doing these old charts and kind of working on and various signatures at the time. And I thought this was kind of fun, right? We can plug in some numbers, plug in some charts and manually, manually, you know, tweak the numbers to make the, all the, the maximal efforts line up. And I thought that was so cool. We could we could do this and you know give me you know any athlete's data and I can tell you what their threshold value is and what their H or HIE or W prime at that time. We could work out those numbers from just plain old data. I thought that was so cool. We didn't have to do testing, um, and that was all done manually. And then I thought, well, could this be done programmatically? That was really the question. Could you write a program to determine the signature from a ride data on its own? And so that's when I worked on some software to see if that could be possible. So the first thing you'd have to do is go through the ride and determine whether there were maximal efforts. Where were these maximal efforts? So we were talking about earlier, you reach, you reach your max. You have to somehow designate that those 10 seconds, for example, were a max effort. And then you say, okay, from those 10 seconds, what is the signature that expresses those 10 seconds? So that was the original algorithm. And... That's what I wrote uh, before Exert started. And by making that work, I thought there would be value in creating a service where people could then upload just their data and, they, and we could turn around and tell them what your signature was. That was the original premise for Exert. It was just to do what I was doing manually for, for people, just to say, like, you know, calculate your signature, your, your threshold without testing. No FTP tests. Yeah, you know, you don't have to do it anymore. Just give me a ride. I'll tell you what it was, right? And we could do it. I could do it by, by hand. Could, it, could we automate this process? That was the first sort of iteration. The fact that we could do this programmatically. And so we put this with a front end, allow you to upload your activities. We tell you your signature. That was the original premise for Exert. We didn't, do, you know, all this other stuff that we've added on sort of evolved out of that. But that was the original premise. And so um, that was that worked really well. Now, uh, to answer your question, you know, we that had that evolved eventually because since we were getting so much new data, not all data had maximal efforts. Sometimes it's really hard to determine, well, was it a maximal effort? You could only determine a maximal effort if you know kind of where the athlete was to start with. Right. So you have to have like a working signature first mm-hmm. and you yeah. use that working signature to say, oh, OK, these are maximal efforts. Um, and so, um, you know, it worked reasonably well. But the question was, OK, so if we're looking for maximal efforts rather than sort of trying to locate them in a, in a ride, why don't we rather than locate them, we just create a weighting. So every single data point gets weighted during this regression process. So if you're far away from MPA, you're going to get a really low weight. It doesn't really count. We don't want to really factor that into so the algorithm. I start my ride right away, it knows I'm not at my maximal effort. So it's yeah, so like, let's, those aren't that important. But as your power gets closer to MPA, those become more and more important. So whereas in the past we would just say, is it important or not? It was like binary, zero or one. Do we include that data point or not? We turned it into, okay, let's make it a value between zero and one. How, how relevant is this data point in helping us determine the signature? And I thought that would make more sense. So we started to weight every data point and use that in the extraction algorithm. And I tried a number of different formulas and they all worked reasonably well. 
until I tried this exponential model. Uh, and it was one of those, again, that just, just lit up. Now, you know, I could throw almost any data at the, at the extraction algorithm and it would come up with a really accurate threshold or a really accurate signature. I thought, wow, this is really special. Like this is now way better than what we had before. Again, order of magnitude improvement. And it was because we had this way of determining how close you were to MPA that was represented in your signature. So your signature was represented in how close you were to MPA, not just MPA itself. And I thought, that's really cool. And we implemented that first within the, uh, the extraction. But then as I was working through and, it, and I thought, you know, we wanted a, a way to quantify how how much training benefit you're getting from training. And I was a little bit uncomfortable using the traditional methods, which were just taking averages and stuff. I thought that wasn't really it. I thought there had to be an improved method. And that's when those two came together. And I went, wait a second here. If this is determining how close I am to MPA and it's able to tell me my signature from it, then that must be how much strain I'm placing on the body. Those have to go. That was a logical leap that I had to make. And it was, and it was a perfectly logical leap to say, because you think about that, as you weaken, the closer you get to a weakened state, the harder it is, the more strain you're putting on that system to try and achieve that power. You, for you to hit 400 watts when your MPA is 1,000, relatively easy. For you to hit 400 watts when your MPA is 500, is really, really hard. So you, it's, it makes perfect sense to say that those with greater proximity to MPA create more strain. Yeah, and that's where we always say, we've said this many times on the podcast, that order matters, right? Or in terms of that second-by-second second analysis, and the classic example we usually give is if you go, you know, go ride at 350 watts or 400 watts for five minutes, the first 10, 15 seconds, it's pretty easy, right? The last 10, 15 seconds is incredibly hard. And the reason for that is you are fatigued, right? You're still generating the same power output, but under a much greater state of fatigue. And therefore, in that sense, you should get more credit for it, right? It's it's really is as kind of conceptually as simple as that, kind of in terms of a light bulb moment. Exactly. And there's still some residual of this uh, initial uh, strain model in the, in the website. Actually, if you go from the XPMC, I think you can go down to strain. Uh, and mm-hmm. strain, when you first developed it, was it wasn't normalized at all, was it? No, it was. So that was for the people that are familiar with Exert from the very beginning. Uh, and they saw when we introduced strain, we still have that strain chart, which was measured in kilojoules, which really is a reflection of how much work you're performing relative to MPA. How close are you to it? So we calculated this kilojoules, but yeah, it was it wasn't um, necessarily equal for every individual. Yeah. So if I'm a heavier rider and I'm simply putting out more power than a lighter rider, then I'm just going to have more strain than them. So it's not I couldn't compare the strain from my ride to theirs because it just wasn't normalized. Right. And so that was one of the things we looked at and said, okay, well, can we use the signature? to then look at 100x success or target 100x success for one hour at threshold. And so again, it was a mathematical exercise to say, okay, how do we convert the strain, which was in kilojoules, into a unitless metric that would then be from zero to 100 at threshold for each individual signature. So we were able to work out that math. And then what was interesting is that when we worked out that math and then calculated XSS for a bunch of rides and then compared that to what typically people are using today and these stress scores, they aligned. They were like, you know, we, we have a chart on that, in fact, one of our blogs. And we look Sometimes at, they're aligned. Yeah, sometimes. They're not always aligned. In fact, so that was one of the things we said. So this is, this is going to pr- provide very, very similar results. But it's not going to suffer from the same challenges that you get when you start looking at averages because we're not using any averages. We're just looking at second by second how much strain is being applied from your power relative to MPA. We add those all up. We normalize them so that they're 100 per 100 exercise per hour for, for, for threshold effort. 
And we provide that number. We add it up for you and give you the number of XSS at the end. And it just, it just turns out that these numbers are very similar to what people have been using in the past. So it, it became an easier sort of lift for people to understand what XSS meant because it was very similar to what they were currently familiar with in terms of stress scores. Yeah, but I would say that's still probably one of the conceptually hard things for many or difficult things for people to wrap their head around because they're so used to other models where, in essence, you can never exceed 100 TSS or mm -hmm. 100 units, and whereas we can, and the reason for that is if you are under fatigue and doing a, an effort under fatigue, you get more credit, so you can because we weight kind of 100 XSS being if you are riding at your threshold power f for one hour, but you never exceed kind of your, it's a very, very even kind of power distribution. So you never go above it. So in a sense, you are kind of still completely fresh throughout. Whereas again, I'm going to bring in the Ronestad workouts again, you are going way above and then recovering way above recovering. Um, your average power may be the same, for me, it's about 250 watts, 260 watts when I do them, but there's a world of difference in terms of the strain on the body. And that's why the Ronestad workout gets way more credit and way more XSS than if I just did the equivalent power at a very, very steady distribution for an hour. And, you know, the, the new study that just came out from Ben Ronestad himself, um, in Norway and what they looked at was they essentially did that study. They looked at doing Ronest one group did Ronestad kind of workouts. I think it was three times a week for three weeks. Another group did the equivalent kind of overall power. Uh, and so the total work performed in terms of kilojoules was the same, but the second group did it at a steady average average effort and lo and behold at the end of the testing period they found that the group doing the Ronestad efforts the on-off efforts they had much kind of greater fitness gains and keep in mind this was already a really fit group this was I believe they were already well above 60 mils I think it was maybe even 70 mills of VO2 max. They were extremely fit individuals, but even then the Ronestad group had way more. And, you know, it was looked at as, you know, and it was looked at, and I know Alex Hutchinson, uh, he wrote a nice piece on Outside Online about studying. says one possible kind of explanation for it is that it was just a novel stimulus because most people don't kind of necessarily do the Ronestad workouts. And because you're doing this novel stimulus in these elite athletes, you're kind of creating a new stress on them that they're adapting to. That's one possibility, but if you model it on, according to exert models, you'll find that the Ronestat group, they ultimately just did a lot more work than uh, they did mm -hmm. a lot more XSS than mm -hmm. the group that did the exact same kind of kilojoules of work, but in a very even distribution. So in that sense, it's no surprise at all that the Ronestad group became fitter because they just did more training, even though the actual kilojoules was the same. Going back to another study before with uh, Steven Seiler, and you can see these workouts on Exert for yourself. We have workouts of where they compared athletes who one group did four by four minute efforts and they did that, I can't recall the exact length of the training program, but they, their training program consisted of four sets of four-minute all-out efforts. Uh, another group did four by eight minutes, and a third group did four by 16. And what Seiler found was that the four by eight group had the most um, kind of benefit, had the greatest gain. And again, if you, if you uh, look at, you know, just if you're an Exert subscriber, just look at those workouts and because you'll find the 4x4, 4x8, 4x16 in the workout library and you'll see that the 4x8, essentially, you accomplish the most work on, on those. So, you know, again, in that sense, it's not surprising that 
that group had the most benefit because of the greater strain and greater XSS overall. Yeah. And that applies, especially applies when I think when you start to look at how it was originally designed in the first protocols. I think Siler since has gone from, I think, a, uh, a exertion uh, RPE based to power based. And so there's a little bit of a translation there. But originally, if you look at a 4x4 four four all out, 4x8 all out, or 4x16, which is relatively around the threshold, the 4x8 will always outperform. And it's, it's when I when I first plugged in our strain numbers, I explained that. And I thought, well, the, the other stress mex, metrics didn't. They were off. They, were, they weren't explaining the same results. So I kind of knew at that point that, yeah, I had a good explanation, a good rationalization and way of measuring strain that I think is going to be valuable to athletes. Because we're going to start to measure it. Not only can we measure strain relative to MPA, but the other thing that came out of this was the ability to assign that strain into the three different systems. So this is another big leap of understanding that I think a lot of people who start to use exert start to appreciate. And that is, is that you only have three measures that determine your MPA. So, and since MPA expresses your point of failure, then you really only train three elements. So you can do these different types of training, Ronstadt training workouts, or silent training workouts, all these various different types of interventions. In the end, Exert just says those interventions make these three different systems, put different strain on them during In different that, ratios. Through different ratios, and that they're going to improve relative to that strain and relative to the training status that you currently have. So it's, there's, a, there's a lot of context involved that often gets missed in, in these studies and that some people are more come in more trained. One system might be more trained than another system in one individual. We don't always capture that or we're unable to capture that in these studies. And that's kind of how these different systems can get improved. For exert does come, we'll, we'll come back to you and say, yeah, if you put more train on your peak system, you're going to improve that peak value. Um, you put more training on, training on your high-intensity system, it's going to adapt. And so we allocate that strain, and then we see how that allocation then improves those values through the training load and how then you get higher values as a result of that training. So that was another kind of aha moment when it came to exert, saying, wow, we can now we can track things across three dimensions. And we can track how much strain you're putting on the body across three dimensions. And I thought, well, that was, that was a really cool kind of um, capability that we came across. But it obviously was harder because now we're taking what was traditionally done in one, one dimension, which was FTP and FTP-based training, to now three dimensions. And it became, obviously, it, it, it is for a lot of our users, it's hard to understand how these three systems relate to each other. Exactly. And yeah. so uh, we at least do have somewhat of a way to try and understand this. And, and that came through with the idea of focus, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And so focus duration came out of all that. Um, and the reason being is that when we're starting to look at, at um, prescribing training or how do you get people to train these different systems, we thought, well, maybe people would want to train them in different Amounts. All you want. To, I just want to train my HIE. We, it's, it's something we still see a lot. I, still, yeah. I want to increase my yeah, LTP. I want to yeah. increase my P power. What, what kind of workouts do I need to do? And, and right. And so, and then we can we can start and give you a chart that shows you that shows you this percentage of peak power and this percentage of HIE and this percentage of uh, threshold power. And you're starting to you're trying to imagine all of these three numbers and different percentages. And we thought that's the way we were going to do it. And then it's like this is going to get really complicated. So why don't we, so I said, why don't we instead look at the different ratios of peak power HIE and, and based upon their different ratios, assign some kind of arbitrary athlete type to them. Because you know, if you're more heavily weighted towards peak power, you're going to be more of a sprinter. And if you're more heavily weighted towards threshold power, you're going to be more of a time trialist. So we kind of already knew that we could associate the relative amounts of these three different systems to different athlete types. But then we ask, well, how much? How much peak power versus HIE versus threshold for a sprinter? 
And I'm like, well, that's gonna, that's a hard problem. How do you how do you come up with that? So that's where you know we're sitting scratching our heads, and then it kind of dawned on, on dawned on me, and I thought, wait a second. If I look at the power duration curve and I look at each individual's power duration curve, I know that at let's say one minute, two minute power, there's a relative contribution of these three systems at that power level. So the same way we calculate strain for 500 watts, right? And if 500 watts is your two minute power, then we can say, okay, so at 500 watts, we have this relative contribution of the three systems if we see data coming in with that same relative contribution, then that must be two-minute power. Okay? That's what that effort represents. And so when we add up all this data and we say, okay, they're in these ratios, rather than giving you those ratios, which were hard and abstract, we then say, no, those are, those are two-minute power for you, and that's a road sprinter. And this is where it gets a little bit challenging because, once again, it's not normalized. So if you're, if you're training at your two-minute power, or let's say you're, whatever, you're, you're 1,200 or 500, eight, 500 watts. Yeah, 500, right. 600 watts, whatever. Right. Uh, versus, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, I might have a focus power of 500 watts, but that might only be my one-minute power. So what was kind of the next step for you in, in trying to help kind of distill this down and make it more palatable and more understandable. So that was, that was the trick, right? Was that, um, you know, different people um, have different power outputs and how do you prescribe training when it comes to, how do you, how do you incorporate the signature into the, into their training? So we know that for, for me hitting 500 Watts, I can hold that for, 30 seconds, but for you, Scott, maybe you can hold it for two minutes. So if I just give a power output, it's the same thing with percentage of FDP. You have to somehow normalize it, but it's got to be normalized just not on FDP, but on your entire signature. Some sort of universal Right, because, because everyone's signature is different, and the relative amounts are different. You get huge variation in the signature values. You get some people with, you know, with peak power at 1,300 watts, with others all the way down to 800 watts, 700, 600 watts. You get a huge variation. And the same applies to the threshold. You can get people at 200 all the way up to 400 watts, you know, professionals. And again, you, and that's, those are somewhat mutually exclusive in some ways. You get some people with really low peak powers, really high thresholds, and other people with super high peak power and very low thresholds. So you get all this variation. You just can't, how do you normalize it so that when you give people a workout, they're going to get the relative similar benefit. And that's where we came up with kind of the focus duration and the MMP and being able to calculate in the workout, for example, to say, we're all going to do the workout at our five minute or our two minute power. So if we do the two minute power, independent of whether my, I have a high peak power or low threshold or low peak power, high threshold, we're all going to be doing in effect the same effort right? It's a two minute effort. And, you know, if, if the effort is to climb a hill and it's two minute hill, then I want to be able to improve my two minute power in the same way that you're going to improve your two minute power. And so using that kind of focus duration and the MMP values helps us kind of conceptualize and understand all the complexities of these numbers, high, low, you know, strain values, all that stuff, all that complexity can, can be distilled down into let's focus in on our two-minute power. And what is my training? Is my training going to focus me on my two-minute power? And all the math that underlies that is, is already built into that. So we don't have to think about all that complexity. You don't have to think about the ratio. Okay, I need to train this much percentage of peak power and this much. Yeah. It's, it's already done for you. Yes, okay, exactly. if I want to work on my four-minute power, I'm going to pick – Punctual workouts. I'm going to do those hard three, four minute efforts right. in my training. And, and then all the ratio for your signature, all the ratio of how much peak power is involved in that, how much HIE and how much training benefit you're getting from that is all part of that. You don't have to worry about all the details. All that gets get added up correctly in, in the training that you do. Yeah, and keep in mind that when we say, you know, you're doing a puncture workout and the focus or now the emphasis is on your four minute power. It doesn't mean the workouts are, you know, right at this wattage for four minutes, right? Mm -hmm. It can be much more 
fine-tuned than that, that the effort maybe is a little bit higher than that, a little bit lower, but they're targeting that four-minute distribute the, the distribution Correct. of strain and and into the peak high intensity energy and and low intensity energy that you would be targeting when you are going for a four minute in a sense all out effort. So you know it's it doesn't mean that you're just gonna be riding at you know doing four minute durations over and over or if your four minute effort is or kind of your four minute mean maximal power is let's say 350 watts it doesn't mean every single effort is going to be at 350 it can be fine-tuned much more to add variety and also uh, also to enhance kind of different levels of recovery so again i think that's another common misconception that people see oh you know your focus your focus today for today's ride is puncher and kind of the interval efforts are at 350 they automatically think well the question is well why isn't my you know why are my intervals actually not at 350 so i think that's a a misconception or a kind of confusion people have about how how this works well it's it's because we're aggregating and, and summing up all the numbers across your entire workout or your ride we're not just looking at in each individual second we're adding all, all these up together and that when we add them all up together then it is like you had ridden at your four-minute power. It's mm-hmm. like you would have. It's not that you rode at four-minute power. It's like you rode. So it's, in some ways, the, the focus duration is a way to, again, back to that, normalize. It's a way to kind of create a way in which you can interpret the same, whether there's pattern in the data or no pattern in the data, whether it's for one person or for another person, we can look, look at all that information and say, okay, here's how we're going to compare this versus another. And so it's a way to kind of bring all that information together and allow you to compare them and kind of, in effect, normalize that very, you know, irregular data into some number that you can interpret. And, yeah. and train for. And train for. And that's also where the specificity rating comes in, right? You'll see... Each workout, again, you may have three different workouts that are all puncture and focus, but one is pure in specificity, another is mixed, and a third one is polar. Well, what that's saying is the pure ones are ones where, you know, much of the ride, much of the efforts are at that four-minute MMP, whereas with a polar one, it means it's much more kind of spread out. You may have very you know efforts that are much higher than your four minute ffp and power and but also a lot that is much less so the overall aggregate is mm-hmm. still at that puncher for for mm minute mmp f- kind of focus but the distribution is is much more scattered whereas a mixed is kind of a much more kind of a um in between it's a mix of mm-hmm. Of both, so that's also how you kind of relate the focus with the specificity and how you can have, and that's why you can have a three workouts with the same focus but much different in specificity. They're all going to benefit you in terms of of uh, targeting that four minute MMP that puncher focus. Uh, you know, if you are choosing workouts, as you get, if that is really, for example, if you know in your race, in your key event, you have this four-minute all-out effort that eventually you're going to need to replicate. Well, you know, as you get closer to the event, you should be probably picking, um, you know, puncher workouts that are much more pure, and so that you're really targeting that specificity. And, that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we chose the word focus. It's kind of a way to assign a value to a number. So it's a focus duration. It's a value. But it also does represent kind of where you're, where you're, where, where you're tank, focusing on. What you're focusing on. Yeah, you know, we define it by focus. itself. Focus Yes, right. We, can, we define it by itself. But that's, and we thought that would be an, an effective use of that word. 
to explain this. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, now uh, we, we spent a good amount of time today talking about uh, MPA, but uh, now in the, in the research literature, a lot of times when we're talking about specifically exercise fatigue, we're really looking at uh, in general, two main groups and, and that's essentially what we call peripheral fatigue and central fatigue. Mm -hmm. And uh, from, from what we have in exert, we've talked a lot about peripheral fatigue, which is essentially MPA. Uh, peripheral mm -hmm. fatigue is essentially all of the, the the muscular limitations of exercise. Mm -hmm. So it could be that accumulation of lactic acid, that accumulation of, mm -hmm. of phosphate anions, that sort of thing. Um, but now there's also this whole other, what we call central fatigue, which is essentially everything between the brain and the muscle itself. And so this could, uh, this could account for stress. It could account for lack of sleep, um, motivation, training status, all of that. And mm -hmm. so um, now in addition to trying to address the peripheral fatigue uh, with exert and MPA, now, you've also introduced what we call difficulty scores. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how that came to be and, and kind of what it's thought to represent. And that came out pretty late in the evolution of exert, right? Well, yeah, it was, it was one of those situations where we weren't looking to model central fatigue. You know, that wasn't the purpose of difficulty score. It was only after the fact that some people, it becomes a little bit more obvious to, to correlate central fatigue with, with difficulty score. But difficulty was a way, how do we quantify how difficult a workout is? We want to know, is this difficult? Because you just can't look at MPA. Because people know that if you do the Rostat workout or what have you, you know, it's easier to hit MPA at the beginning of workout. It becomes really hard to hit MPA at the end of workout. You still can. So you can hit your MPA late in a workout. It's just way harder and more painful to do so. It's not that you can't, like you're still, you're, you're still limited by MPA. Interestingly, like that's the same MPA at the beginning at the end. The MPA doesn't change. Just you find it easier to hit it at the beginning. And it's not like you can go deeper and you can, you know, all of a sudden you have different signature. You know, you have to be in a first short workout. You have the same signature throughout. Just at the beginning, you can reach MPA and at the end, it becomes harder. So how do we represent that? Um, because, you know, that becomes, that can help us define when a workout is too hard. Right. If we if there's too much difficulty, then we know why you can't hit MPA later in the workout. So first we thought we'd just create some difficulty and just take the XSS over the hour, let's just say, and say, okay, here is the XSS that you averaged, right, for for the workout. And that's what we originally had. Um, sort of your average XSS. So we learned that averages don't work very well. <laughs> we had yeah, and especially since you know we. We wanted to help people understand, so we interpreted the data. We didn't just give you the exercise per hour. We said, oh, this was difficult, or this was easy, or this was tough. So we're assigning some kind of level to that to help people understand what kind of the numbers mean in the end. And then we got a lot of, a lot of complaints. Like, no, that wasn't easy. That was really hard, you know, or why did you come up with these numbers? And so um, we kind of realized that just averaging wasn't really going to work. Uh, and that there was a better way to kind of evaluate this. And the one thing that sort of dawned on me was that that difficulty increases as you do the workout. So it's easier at the beginning than it is at the end. So how would you represent that in the data? So we thought rather than taking an average for the workout, we would take an exponentially weighted moving average and say, okay, so because it takes you longer to build up this kind of difficulty over the course of a workout. And so... We already had those hardness tests defined. We had a bunch of workouts defined in the system. And so I thought, well, let's, let's, work the, let's work out what we would think would make the most sense in terms of assessing the difficulty, where the difficulty in the end that was calculated was relative to the same workouts and their difficulty that we would imagine. And so we tuned the difficulty score using this exponentially weighted moving average, and we worked out what we thought would be a reasonable way of measuring it through a time constant of 30 minutes. So underneath the coverage for difficulty score, there is a 30-minute time constant of your XSS rate. How much XSS are you accumulating on a per-second basis? And we weight that exponentially over 30 minutes. And that seemed to work the best in terms of giving us a number that helps us interpret how difficult that workout is. And what was really interesting was that the difficulty of that workout also aligned with training status. So we can also say that the more trained you are, the more 
apt you are, more capable you are of doing more difficult workouts. That the difficulty of the workouts not only was represented in, in to this exponentially weighted moving average, but the actual correlation of that number with training status was there too. So we could then say, the more trained you are, the more difficult your workouts. So we thought this is a really great concept that we should introduce into, into, the, into, the, into the software. And then we've added a bunch of reporting and information along those lines. So I think we're a little bit much better at looking at how difficult a workout or a ride was by looking at the difficulty. Um, we're using this exponentially weighted moving average rather than just looking at plain averages. Um, we still get some users that will say, oh, you know, it says I rode for six hours. You know, that was really hard. <laughs> how come it says it was easy? And, you know, that answer to that one is, well, you can't ride six hours really hard. You know, it, it, hard by difficulty score standards means you're above threshold and you're, you're, you know, you're really, really working that end of your, of your power much more aggressively and generating that difficulty. You can't sustain that, obviously, for six hours. Mm -hmm. So um, you would expect um, a, a six-hour effort to have been ridden on, on average fairly easy. Yeah. Of course, the side benefit of coming up with difficulty scores is that finally we have a metric that I can be <laughs> a top top one percentile. Because mm -hmm. as uh, as Armando knows, whenever I send him send him these crazy files with difficulty scores of 160, 170, he just shakes his head, sends me the uh, head shake emoji. <laughs> so I'm like, how is this even possible? Yeah. There's a few people on Facebook too that are just like incredible what kind of difficulty scores they can they can they can handle. You just, guys are animals. Oh, it's crazy. But you know, so yeah, I think that is good. You know, like we're not just comparing each other with, you know, what we can what what kind of threshold power we yeah, have. Exactly. But, you know, in fact, you know, you, if you hear a lot of professionals talk about what distinguishes one professional athlete versus another and they'll tell you that it's not about their threshold there's this other element that distinguishes them and i would you know think that that kind of boils down into how much difficult like how deep can they go and can they go really hard when they're under extreme amount of fatigue uh, can they reach mpa after an hour of smashing it you know that's that's where you, the, you separate the real winners from those that kind of yeah you know they're They've got the fitness, but they really can't deliver it when, when you know, when when, uh, when the time comes for it. And I think difficulty score really relates well to kind of how I ride. I've often said, you know, again, I love the Ronestad workouts, but in our St. Catharines group rides, I I can punch in a way far above my weight in in the uh, hard on and off efforts that we do uh, on our Sunday ride, where it's pan flat and maybe in a crosswind tailwind, but it's just, it starts out with about 12 of us doing pulls. And, you know, as soon as we get to the front, we're pulling off and recovering. So it's that team time trial type effort. And by about halfway through, instead of 12, suddenly there's only about five or six of us. And I'm with the fastest guys in our club. And again, punching far above my weight and I can handle that. It is intensely hard. You're barely recovering, and then you're going up to the front again. And I thrive on the, that. And the the files I get afterwards, always difficulty score is ridiculously high. Whereas you know, so I can have in a sense that really high tolerance to this discomfort, that that um, you know high central kind of fatigue threshold. Whereas my peripheral isn't as strong and I can see this in the rides that we get into Smithville and we have kind of the sprints and then last K, K and a half when again these fast guys are suddenly just rocketing and going and doing that final attack where in a sense it's almost not central, it's a peripheral kind of fatigue. I I get dropped, I get popped pretty quickly from that and I'm never there in the finale in the sprint. Whereas when it's that steady, incredibly hard effort of kind of just suffering and hang on in the pace line, I can. But not when suddenly there's that, again, that one minute of absolute insanity where everyone's attacking. I, I don't have the pure power or, in a sense, the MPA, the, the peripheral capacity to, to mm -hmm. handle that. 
That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I definitely appreciate uh, some of the uh, retrospective uh, comments that you've made today, Armando. Mm -hmm. It really uh, definitely uh, makes me appreciate uh, what we've got with the system with Exert now. And um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to kind of what's next. Uh, it, it's been fun to be here so far and constantly rolling out new features. It's It's fun. Well, you know, we we, they, we we're in the breakthrough lab. You know, this breakthrough has so many connotations, and you know, sometimes it's really fun to kind of play with the numbers and then see what what you end up with and what um, kind of really cool um, and amazing things that can be done from the numbers. And I think that's been the, the probably the best experience, having uh, gone through all of the sort of new things that we've come up with and. All this new software, the challenges, the, the adversities, and again, the people to appreciate all this stuff as well. I think that's been a really fulfilling part of this whole project. And I think the really interesting thing, kind of through this journey, is that you know, we're coming up with a lot of kind of mathematical models and kind of insights that explains things that ultimately are very intuitive. It's I don't think anyone can argue that you know the last fifteen seconds of a hard effort is a lot harder than the first 15 seconds. We've kind of, in a sense, figured out mathematically how or why that is, and we're modeling. So same thing with difficulty scores, same thing with focus. I think all of these are, I mean, again, that's the part I find really interesting is that all of these are kind of mathematical models of something that is, you know, kind of very intuitive, both both just on a kind of a pure first principles um, kind of perspective and also just in terms of physiology. So it's been really neat kind of merging both. You know, and I think one of the things that people that are really um, excited about using Exert, we have a lot of really positive feedback from a lot of our customers. I think what they have become to realize, I think that that's what makes them so, so happy to use the software is that there's there's really is a lot of there's a positive feedback process here in terms of how they're using it and how it's able to predict whether it's predicting MPA or predicting what their fitness will be into the future. It's predicting it to the point where it's very very precise, and that precision is really what creates that aha moment when you're thinking, how does it know that you know out of my two hour ride that those five seconds, I couldn't push the pedals any longer. And it knew that. And it not only knows that, but then will predict that into the future. Those are the kinds of things I think that, that make, when I first looked at it, that kind of was the light bulb in my brain going, this is pretty amazing that it can do that, uh, that this model is, is capable of getting that precise in its level of prediction and how that, that, that prediction is, is so repeatable. Like the physiology behind this is very, very repeatable, right? Um, that is an astonishing concept. And that's kind of what, what um, I'm just trying to live up to. Like this, is, this model is, is beyond even what I think I can deliver on my own. Uh, it's going to continue to evolve. And I think as people, more and more people get involved, I'm think, really excited to see what we're, uh, where, we can, where we can bring this to. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking forward to it. Uh, well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks, uh, thanks for having uh, having Stephen and I along. It's fun. I absolutely love it. So yeah, um, thank you guys. Yeah, do you have anything else to add, Stephen? Uh, no, nope, I think that's it for me. All right. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Have a little more appreciation for the uh, the historic uh, backgrounds of Exert, and and hopefully uh, tell some of your friends and. Uh, we'll keep moving forward. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Uh, we'll All catch right. you next time. I'll be in tow. <laughs>